eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello and welcome into the Fog.net podcast. My name is Michael Swain, the Kansas Be writer for 24-7 Sports. Here we are, another Sunday, Kevin. <laughs> another Sunday. It got dark at freaking five thirty. I hated it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fall back. Fall back. I, it, I'll tell you what, Kevin. I needed the extra hour after what was a, a long night after KU football defeats Iowa State twenty-eight to twenty-one at Jack Trice Stadium. KU's first win in Ames since two thousand eight. I mean, Kevin. I, mean, I could go through a whole list of the first time senses after this game with KU clinching seven wins and having a seven and two record, but. Um, for you, the weekend, how to treat you? You know, I, I'm bad a little, a little something. So if I sound a, a little off, that's uh, that's why. But otherwise, you know, it was a great weekend for college football. A great weekend mm. to to have all those games to watch. It it didn't disappoint at all. I know a lot of people feel like that first weekend in November is typically, you know, maybe the best weekend for college football. How about you? Did you wind up driving back from Ames after? that night game and how did that go yeah we did a day trip so myself uh matt tate and uh yeah. someone else drove up and back in in the same day and that was that was a long day and <laughs> i'm fortunate that matt and one of his buddies decided to do most of the driving so i was a uh, sitting in the back seat just you know providing moral support but yes yeah, so we, <laughs> we drove up um on Saturday morning and then drove back Saturday night. We're able to watch like the K state, Texas game on the way up. We're able to watch um, some of the other stuff going on. And then obviously on the way back got the end of the the Colorado game and, and all of that, but you're right. It was a big weekend of college football. I think KU, right. Getting the ESPN game to, to to cap a day like that. I feel like is a, is a pretty big stage. I'm really fascinated to see what the television numbers look like when they come back later this week, because it ended up being an exciting game at the end, but I'm always fascinated by these night slots, especially on ESPN or a Fox, just tuning in. Right. I feel like a lot of people go out, they have their day, um, whether you're living in the West coast, the East coast, Midwest, like you go out, you have your day, you come back seven, eight, nine o'clock. Like you're kind of sitting down to to hang out and, and see what's on. So I think KU probably had a, a pretty good stage for, I think, what was a a pretty good performance for KU. I, what stood yeah. out to you most? Like, let's dive into it. Well, what stood out? Well, I, I know, you know, doing uh, doing pregame stuff for, for the Iowa State radio station and everything, 
one of the things that that I had said was that Kansas was probably going to struggle running the ball. And we talked about that on, on this podcast. And so I said, you know, two things kind of needed to happen in order for Kansas to win. One, the defense had to really show up well and, and kind of controlled their end. And the other thing was Jason Bean has played really well at points this year, to the point that you would even say brilliantly at points this year. But he's put the ball at risk and, mm-hmm. at times. And the thing that I said was Jason Bean cannot put the football at risk because Iowa State, I felt like, was not great offensively. I felt like you didn't want to give them short fields. You didn't want to give them momentum. But also, Iowa State's the type of team that can make you pay when you put the ball at risk. You aren't going to see that dropped interception. You're going to see them, you know, take advantage of it. And so when you looked at how the game played out, it it played out kind of the way that you would have. I mean, obviously, you'd love everything to go perfectly. It wasn't going to go that way. But at the same time, you struggled running the ball. Jason Bean did not put the ball at risk. And, And, you know, I... I'm sure we'll we'll talk about this here in a minute. That was maybe his best performance. I, I thought of his Kansas career, maybe his most complete performance. And, and then the defense, you know, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about them specifically. The defense was just terrific. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a lot of good points there, Kevin. I think for me, starting fast was going to be huge, right? Yeah. Because you look at KU, and I've probably been hammering at this maybe too much (laughs) looking back at how much I've written about it and things, but you know, KU has not had a fast start in a road game. If you want to count Nevada as a fast start, you can, I wouldn't agree with you, but you you have to go back to like November of 2021 for a time that Kansas like started well. And I felt like this was the type of game where in this crowd in this atmosphere, um, KU needed to start fast and they were able to Right, the defense comes out. It forces, the stop early on and I want to go here because I feel like it it encapsulates the entire performance. You know, I'm on the pregame, the sideline pregame. Right. And yeah, I I like to go down and just see and chat with people and stuff, but it was very apparent on the sideline pregame that Kansas was bigger than Iowa state. (laughs) And I covered some of those great Iowa state teams. Like there were times when Iowa state walked into Texas, walked into Oklahoma and looked like some of the bigger teams like Iowa state, Campbell has built physically imposing teams before and to see KU warming up and, you know, 20 feet away, Iowa state's warming up, but you can just see how much more physically developed KU looks like that stood out to me pregame. And I think you saw that throughout the course of the game. I think it started defensively where in the first half, right. They were getting after him. They were getting after him. Like there's the one play where Austin Booker does a rush to the inside and just like forearm shoves, the left tackle and the guy just goes flying out of the way and credit to Rocco back. Like he made a ton of really good plays. And I think KU could end this game with even more tackles for loss, even more sacks. If, if Rocco didn't have such a quick release and a good feel for the pocket. So I think for me, like the defensive start to the game was so important here to make sure that KU is able to get off on the right foot and man, and they were able to do it. And I think just for me, like so much of that first half was so encouraging because KU was without Devin Phillips, really. And yep. Tommy Dunn didn't make the trip, right? Devin got hurt against Oklahoma, um, tried to give it a go. He couldn't go, and, and Tommy didn't even make the trip. And, Kevin, I think we talked about in the offseason, right? You feel good about KU's defensive tackles, but 
if you go into a game like this without two of probably your top three defensive tackles, like you don't feel great about it. And yet, if you watch the game, KU's defensive line is getting after it. So for me, like watching the first kind of quarter or so, like that was super encouraging to see. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. And I thought the defensive line maybe controlled the game more than any other unit on on KU's team. And mm-hmm. I think that allowed the linebackers to play fast and and aggressively, you know, hi, Craig Young. You know, like we, we, yeah. we, we, we have been talking on the show about how a lot of times Craig Young doesn't show up as much because of the things they ask him to do. It's not that he's not playing well. It's that, you know, he's he's being asked to to run with a tight end, you know, down, you know, or a slot receiver or somebody and do something differently. Craig Young had two tackles for loss. And, you know, he was aggressive at, at getting forward. You know, Rich Miller was aggressive coming forward. You know, um, I, I thought that they – the defensive line playing the way that they did, I thought really set the tone. And, and quite frankly – if not for Rocco Becht, maybe having the the two that, that come to my mind in terms of guys passing the ball against Kansas efficiently, Keaton Slovis, that mm-hmm. first half against BYU was was kind yeah. of unconscious. Totally. And Rocco Becht was tremendously accurate. I, I thought that he, you know, he threw the ball really well. He played with a lot of poise. Um, and, and it's... I think back to when you when you look at where he was earlier this year, when you look at where he is now, you know, he just continues to to grow. And Iowa State's got a really nice looking quarterback there. Uh, but I, I thought if if Beck didn't play at the level that he played at, like this might have been a runaway, as crazy as that sounds, because I thought going in, and maybe this is a another maybe we'll talk about it now, maybe later. Yeah. Going in, I thought both you and I felt like this was the toughest remaining game on Kansas' schedule. I mean, may, correct me if I'm wrong on that. I mean, uh, obviously there's the Kansas State game in Lawrence that was there, but we thought that this could be, and I thought it this would be Kansas's toughest remaining yeah. game, both because of where Iowa State is, but also the night game, being in Ames, you know, Kansas's play on the road, generally speaking. Kansas's play against Iowa State's defensive system, where Kansas mm-hmm. typically hasn't been able to run the ball at all on Iowa State. And so all of those things combined, I thought that this was maybe the biggest chance for a loss in Kansas's final four games. Yeah, I think if you're looking at trend lines, so I think maybe Kevin yeah. is like to differentiate, right? If you want to look at trend lines, yes, this was definitely the thing with the most trends going against KU, right? Iowa State's so good at home, at night, under Campbell. Um, you look at what KU's done against the 3-3-5, running the ball, right? That's not sure. a great sign if you're going to go on the road and play that type of style, right, and try and suck the air out of the ball and limit possessions like it's kind of tough to do that when you're playing as a defense that continuous stops you but i think k-state like team talent you know i think that's sure, definitely the toughest. Sure. but i think you're right though with rocco you know he's pretty poised and made some good plays but even then ku punishes the one mistake he made and yep. look Melo dotson deserves a ton of credit right like i think i've been thinking about this more and i'll probably write about it monday but this is a guy that is playing on the opposite side of Kobe Bryant, who is probably one of the better cornerbacks in the country, right? This isn't even, we're at the point now where it's not even the conference. Like we're talking country in terms of impact, shutting down a side of the field, 
um, not making mistakes. Like the flag he got fly thrown, the flag that was thrown on him. I, I don't know. Like that yeah. was kind of 50, 50 for me. I felt like there were other times in the game that it was similar contact and nothing was thrown. So it's whatever, but Melo playing on the other side of Kobe, right? He's going to get like thrown at more. And as a result, like corner is one of the hardest positions to play in football. And so he's in a tough position. And I think this, the last two games kind of just show you that, Hey, like he's here too. And he's also a really good player who I'm getting the feel like would start at a lot of other teams in the big 12. And I think you got to give credit to him. Um, Give me your thoughts on Melvin. I've got a good story that I don't think you would have seen if you watched it on TV. Yeah, I I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think we talked about this after the Texas game where Melo got picked on a little bit, you know, with A.D. Mitchell. And most teams don't have, you know, a Xavier Worthy on one side. And then you put your number one corner on him and A.D. Mitchell is the guy on (laughs) the other side. But I I think we talked about it then where we said, you know, you come away from that game and and you're thinking, you know, man, like Melo really struggled. But you look at the other side and you say, well, if Mello was the number one corner and teams, you know, were choosing to split things up, he wouldn't get tested as often. He's getting tested as often as he is, not because he's a bad player, but because Kobe Bryant's on the other side. And so you you have to go that way with the football. And I, I think Dotson's confidence seems like it continues to grow. His competence seems like it continues right. to grow each week. And I think, you know, that's something you have to consider when you see him get thrown at five or 10 times a game or whatever is the fact that it's not that they're testing him all that because his guy's always open. It's because Kobe Bryant's on the other side. That's, that's where you're going with the ball more mm-hmm. than likely. Yeah. So this is why I love going to road games and just being at games in general, because you don't see these things on TV. So Mello sure. takes his helmet off, right? Which, yeah, like, and we all know that's like, that's going to be a flag. Yeah. And Leipold is pissed on the sideline, like so bad. And you see him kind of walk away from the end zone up the sideline, like looking for <laughs> Mello to yell at him most likely. And you see him look and look, and then all of a sudden he just turns around, grabs the mic, goes like this, and just you can see him like yelling into it. And then I look down the sideline to find Jordan Peterson, who clearly got the message from Leipold <laughs> to go talk to Mello. And Mello's down there dapping up guys like, yeah, good play, this, that. And then Jordan grabs him and uh, talks to him for a second. And But then obviously, right, you see why Leipold was so pissed about it because – they push the it back 15 yards and isn't that the play then when Iowa state almost takes to the house and there's a ghost call along the sideline. Yeah. Like it's just one of these moments where I, it's funny that Leipold got upset and wanted to yell at him, but then you see why he was so frustrated. And so it's just one of those uh, chain of events that like is so you had to be there. And so yeah, like, sure. Yeah, it's just interesting. Sure. I, those, those are always funny. I, I still, you know, not to get too far off topic, but I, I still remember Moderick Johnson dropping a potential touchdown pass against Missouri and he's coming off and you see Mangino going over to, you know, to scream at him and Johnson sees him at about the 50 and starts veering off like toward the 30, you know, like I'm not going that way. That's danger. 
and you see mm-hmm. Mangino, you know, start taking off to get down there so that he can yell. Stuff like that, that's always great to see. And like you said, you don't – that's something you only see if you're there. It's not mm-hmm. something that you get a chance to really see on TV or, or how that's handled. And so that's uh, that's pretty funny. It, it was a, obviously, you know, like you said, a mistake, but a mistake that came after a terrific play. And, and so it's uh, one that uh, – one that I, I think Kansas would – I don't want to say would live with, but you know, you'd rather have the touchdown than not, obviously. Well, look, yeah, it's the phantom call, right? I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that, you know, Jalen sure. Knoll did not step out of bounds and that, you know, KU benefited from that. But still, it's one of those situations where, I mean, Melo makes a great play, um, but then the defense does its job, right? And I think yep. it's this complimentary football kind of coming together in this game where it just was super impressive to see it come together in the way that it did, where, the offense couldn't really run the ball, right? And yep. yet they're getting into these third and longs, and it's Jason Bean just dropping back and slinging it. And we can probably get into his performance because if you look at the pro football focus grades, um, his grade, I believe, is like a 90.8 or something in that realm, um, is the highest graded passing performance from a Kansas quarterback against a Power 5 team under Lance Leipold. And you would have thought like, hey, maybe Jalen had one of these, like maybe the Liberty Bowl was one of those. Like, no, this passing performance from Jason Bean is it. And, you know, Leipold postgame mentioned that, oh, you know, his stats aren't going to jump out of you. But I'd say, look, if you're completing 61% of your passes for 12 yards in attempt. 20 yards of completion. 20 yards of completion. Like, yeah, you take that. Those numbers, you jump off the page. They're good. And just how explosive they were and. Obviously, like there's the 80 yard play, but shoot, I mean, even without that, like it's still a really strong performance from Bean. And I thought he just made good throw after good throw after good throw. And I don't know if if you're like me, Kevin, but as the game went on, I'm waiting, like, okay, like when's it gonna come? Like, when's he gonna throw it to someone on the other team? And it's gonna come down if they dr- pick it up or not, or if they catch it. And it just didn't happen. And I think that speaks to the way that Bean was mentally processing everything and the reads and the way they're going through it, that he's able to play this clean of a game against a team that has been so um, prolific at taking the ball away from opposing teams. Like granted, Jeremiah Cooper, their leading safety, wasn't playing, but you know, Miles Purchase and TJ Tampa are two really good cornerbacks that yep. they have. You know, both Freeler and Mika Verdon are, are two other guys that would play to their big 12 teams. Like I just Bean was on fire, man. And that was great to see. Cause I, again, I'll say it again. No one deserves it more than him with everything he's dealt with and, and coming back and all of that. Each of Kansas's top five receivers, you know, you look at that, had a catch of at least 17 yards. Mm. So, I mean, you know, you, you, there's the 80 yarder for Arnold, but you had the unbelievable catch obviously by, by Quentin Skinner. Um, you, you have Luke Graham with the 17 yarder that, that he was able to bring in Tanaka Scott and Douglas Emilian yeah. with the 21 yarder apiece. And, and so Bean was spreading the ball around. He, he wasn't making mistakes. And even beyond that, I think one of the knocks on him, you know, at least earlier this year or, or whatever else that we had talked about was that when you needed being to make a play in the highest of leverage situations, there were, there were times when he wasn't able to make that play. Yeah. And against Iowa State, that wasn't the case at all. 
like when Kansas needed a clutch throw, Jason Bean had that clutch throw. I mean, Iowa State closes to within 21 to 18. He connects with with LJ Arnold on the 80 yarder for a touchdown. And, and even beyond that, when Kansas is trying to run out the clock, you know, and you know, you're not able to run the ball necessarily, but you're able to run it enough to make a, a manageable situation. Mm-hmm. He has the ball to to Jared Casey. You know, he was able to pick up different third downs uh, on key drives. He just he was very clutch in the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I thought against Iowa State, and you know, it, it's interesting because obviously he's had moments where he's been unbelievable. I mean, the second half against TCU when he took over for, you know, he had what, like 270 passing yards or something like that in a half. You look at what he did um, against Oklahoma state kind of heading into, you know, through the first, you know, couple quarters, two quarter, two and a half quarters or so like that. Um, He made a really clutch play in a big moment against Oklahoma you know, on that fourth down connecting with Arnold. This is the first game that I can remember where he was consistently clutched throughout it in high leverage situations. He didn't put the ball at risk. He was making good decisions. Like I said, I I think this is as well as Jason Bean has played quarterback at the University of Kansas. I agree, Kevin. High leverage moments, third downs, right? That's when it comes down to. I think these third down numbers are crazy. I, I pulled them up here in front of me. So Bean was two of seven on third down in the first half. Four of six on third down in the second half, right? It feels like traditionally you'd flip-flop those, right, for a lot of these Bean performances, right, where it's first half, four of six, and then, you know, two of seven in the second half. And I think, you know, just as the game went on, like I just felt like he was had so much confidence, and you could just see it. The way he was surveying the field, the decisions, the guys he was deciding to throw to, right? It was just making great calls. And I think Andy Kordonecki, this is one of those game plans where if you're going to do like a, a seminar on how to counter what defenses are doing against you, like in the passing game, this is the exact game I think you'd show sure. where as the game progressed, right? Haycock, who I think is one of the best defensive coordinators in the country, really started to hone in and those safeties that you see for Iowa state were really firing, right? The, their middle safety. That's kind of like a linebacker. And then their, their boundary guy was firing the ball, right? They're around the line of scrimmage. And then what happens, right? There's the touchdown, I believe for Iowa state, they play the juicy wiggle song that everybody loves. They got the dance <laughs> to it. Um, the stadium's going crazy and you know, Haycock's thinking, all right, here they go. They're going to run the ball on first down. We're going to get a TFL on first down, stall this drive. We're getting the ball back. We're going to win the game. And then it's a play action. Lawrence Arnold wide open 80 yards. Like, and then you go to later in the game, the, the game ceiling play to Jared Casey. It's another one where you think, okay, here comes a run. Here comes a run. All of a sudden Jared Casey's wide open. And I think for being too, it's the touch on those throws to put it in position where those guys aren't having to make like nine or 10 out of 10 difficult catches. Like, those guys can make those plays. And I just think being in the play calling, like everything came together in this where it's not going to be a, a game where you look and see K put up 50, but I felt like execution wise, like K was right there and they did a pretty good job. Yeah. They were able to get some of the matchups they wanted against safeties and, and take mm-hmm. advantage of those matchups. Um, I, I think, you know, it was well called in that, 
we knew Kansas was going to struggle to run the ball. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that that's just been the case against not just the system, but this defense particularly, you know, Iowa State's defense. Yeah. But they didn't go away from it. And, and I actually, you know, some people are going to say, why are you running the ball when you're running it for 2.1 a carrier or whatever it, it was? The reason why you do that is, you know, you steal some time here, you steal some time there, you stretch out a possession a little bit, you make it third and five, you know, with two 2.5 yard carries as opposed to third and 12. And and so I, I thought they did a really nice job of balancing things out, even as the passing game was obviously, you know, more effective. Honestly, if Kansas ran for, you know, they ran for 74 yards. If they ran for 10 yards and threw for 400, I'm not sure they win this game. I, mm. I, I'm i really not. I think that they needed at least the threat of that run to keep Iowa State honest. And so when you look at, at all of that and how they were, you know, how they were able to do that against this defense, this Iowa State defense, to be a combined 7 of 14 over third and fourth downs, you know, it is really, really impressive. And, and I, I can't say enough about the Iowa State defense and, and all the things that Haycock does that that makes life so difficult for everybody. I mean, I think Brent Venables is one of the best defensive coaches in the country, and Venables admits that he openly steals from Haycock. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that kind of tells you, you know, how respected and and everything he is. But, yeah, I, I thought that I thought that Kansas attacked – Iowa State's defense about as perfectly as you could. This wasn't going to be a game where Kansas had 200 yards rushing. It probably wasn't going to be a game where Kansas was going to have 400 yards offense, but Mm. they had 360, and they were able to be opportunistic in in what they did, and I think that was – that was a huge key, and that was the way that Kansas was going to get out of Ames with with a win. Yeah, and I think, look, the defense wasn't perfect in the second half. I think sure. Iowa State had some success um, kind of getting in behind KU's linebackers, right? That's an area where we've seen people really try and attack KU this season. It's kind of in the area, right? Right, Because KU does play deep safeties a lot, and so it's sure. kind of in that area right, right in front of like OJ and Kenny and Marvin, um, but also behind the linebackers. Um, and it wasn't perfect in the second half, but the defense held on and they got the stops they needed, right? A shorthanded defense did the job. And I think that, look, you look at offense, you look at defense, like it was not perfect, right? The offense yep. did not score every drive. There were lulls in the game. The defense did not get a stop every time. But I think it's enough of that complimentary football coming together where KU is able to win the game. Um, how worried are you about special teams at this point? Uh, not super worried. I mean, I, I get the, the issues, especially from a kicking standpoint, you know, and and it's unfortunate because you bring in Seth Keller, who had obviously been a really, you know, effective kicker at his previous stop. And, um, and I think he felt like, you know, he was going to make short kicks pretty automatic for you. Um, and I, I think they felt like, Hey, you know, on longer kicks, we, we've got a guy too. Um, Noel breaking that long kick return, you know, obviously was was a huge play that the Kansas got bailed out on. But you know, you're you're talking about complimentary football. You know, he he has that return. It, it gets brought back some, and 
you know, the next three plays, you know, you basically have a run stuff by Caleb Taylor and Hayden Hatcher for one yard. Then, you know, back to throws incomplete. And then, you know, Rich Miller gets the sack of Beck. And so they wind up having that big play. It gets partially brought back. And Iowa State gets negative six yards on three plays. And, and so the defense, I, I thought, made up for it fairly well there. You do worry. I, I think you worry a little bit going into the K-State game, right? Because it's like, Kansas State has proven that they can win games or hang around games by exploiting special teams' mistakes. They did it this weekend. You know, they were getting absolutely hammered by Texas, and then they block a punt. It sets up a quick touchdown, and all of a sudden, it's game on. And, and so uh, I think that's the one thing that that maybe scares you a little bit. What's, what's kind of your worry level at this point? Uh, too many mistakes are creeping in. That, that for yeah. me – where you looked at kind of the what the first five games of the season ish, right? Four yep. games of the season, they're really solid, right? I think they had the number one special teams unit in SP plus as a result, and then all of a sudden you look at that UCF game in the second half, and there are a couple mistakes, and then you look at Oklahoma State, right? There's those PATs and yeah. that were just rough looking. And then they go to the bye week, but then they come back, right? Trevor Wilson muffs a punt. Seth Keller misses another field goal, I believe. Um, And then this week, you know, now you're looking at it, you missed two more field goals. Like Seth Keller now is, I believe, three for his last six in field goals. And look, he was a guy that was hitting 40s, sorry, low 40s, not early 40s, low 40s at Texas State at a good rate. And I don't think it's that different and maybe this is i'm naive and don't understand it but to me i I look at it and say like you were doing it there like it's not that much different and you're doing it earlier this season so i don't know i will say i I will say maybe this is the wrong way to look at it yeah for college kickers a lot of times 40 plus is you know i I don't want to say it's pushing it but you get some pretty wildly varying accuracies at that that point and you know keller missed from 41 which you know you would hope he would hit but he missed it and he missed from 50 so you know i wouldn't have or i guess was it popper jettis that attempted the 50 <laughs> it's peeper yeah. gertis but i love that i love that attempt that's great Pop, popper gertis okay yeah i i screwed that up pretty bad he he missed the 50 50s are 50s are tough you know yeah obviously. i agree 41, I still say, you know, you'd hope he would hit it, but it's not, it's a 55% kick maybe. So, I mean, I I guess maybe I'm not super worried because of that, but yeah, Popper Gerdes's family is, is going to come after me in the, in the mentions. I apologize. I I tried hard. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was not on my game on that. That's funny. No, it's all good. But yeah, so it's just something to track. Someone to put in the back of your head. Right yeah. for the K State game, especially. Um, but let's go big picture. I'm gonna have a little bit of a soliloquy here, but um, right. the win over Iowa State, right? Like Campbell and Leipold have a lot in common, right? D3 sure. backgrounds, Mac, um, developmental program, and Leipold was pretty upfront in 2021 and last year talking about how he wanted KU to kind of use the blueprint that Iowa State had in terms of developing a team. 
And Leipold also talked about going to Iowa State in 2021 and getting off the bus and seeing that brand new football facility they have that's pretty good looking, right? $90 million. And he talks about how that was a moment where he realized how far KU had to go in the facilities race to match Iowa State. And over the next four hours, right, he also sees how far KU had to go to match Iowa State on the field. And here we are, you know, two years later, and KU's got the infrastructure. Yeah. with the program, right, where there's plenty of support in the program. They've got the new facility coming. They've got the stadium renovation coming. And they've do got they have a bridge team. coming, though. And Do they have a bridge? No, there's no – actually, I mean, hey, man, the University of Kansas already has a bridge, right? And yeah, that's, that's going true. over whatever, that, over Iowa. Um, they need to market that a little bit better, in my opinion. There you go. Um, yeah. But – and now you look at it, right, Kevin? Two years later, the financial – support is there for KU to match what Iowa state has, if not surpass it and surpass it by a lot. Um, They've got a better team than Iowa state right now. And and the team that will be better next year too. I don't know. I I mean, I, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think so, but I also think this is an Iowa state team. That's got a lot of young talent. And so I'm interested, but that offensive line is not going to get any better. The offensive line is where they're going to need to portal and get a couple guys, I think, for sure. And that's not Campbell. Yeah, and that's therein lies the problem. But defensively, they've got a lot of young talent that's very, that I think looks really, really good. Exactly. And then you're back to it's what Iowa State is. But (laughs) then you're back to, yeah, Iowa State being top 10 defense and not. Right. So being able to protect, protect, even though. Kevin, if KU is going to be a consistent bowl team, what do they have to do? They have to beat the Iowa States of the world. Oh, right? sure. And this is more like the level of team, right? And so you look to the new Big 12. Okay, so the top, I believe, of the conference, right, you're looking at programs like Utah, right? They're going to walk in day one yeah. and be one of the best teams. I think K-State consistently with Chris Kleiman, they're going to be really good. I think Oklahoma State with Gundy, they're going to be really good. But then there's this kind of hodgepodge of teams where you look at maybe an Arizona, um, an Iowa State, West Virginia, um, Texas teams Tech, that probably. oh Texas yeah. Tech, thank you, yeah, of course TCU. But there's yeah. this whole kind of hodgepodge of teams that KU is going to be in with. Sure, and you've got to have the support and you've got to have the developmental ability to get guys in and have them become better over the course of time. And so I just think this type of game is really important for the kind of like the benchmark of where Kansas is taking steps forward to be able to have success in the new Big 12. And what does that mean? Well, you know, if you win the Big 12, right, there's new college football playoff format coming where you are in the playoff. And so if you can compete at the top of the Big 12, all of a sudden you are playing in the biggest stage in college football. And so, you know, it's just one of these things where it's kind of like a ladder and you continue trying climbing it. And so KU is now in this point where this team and it seems like with the trend of where this program is headed, that they should be able to compete with the Iowa States, the West Virginias and be able to beat those teams. And therefore, if you beat those teams, you're getting closer to being in that biggest Asian college football with the playoffs. So I just it's a long way to get to it. But I just think this type of game is really interesting in that and especially when you compare it to two years ago. Yeah. And I, you know, I would recommend everybody, you know, look further back on our channel to our interview with Travis Goff. And one of the things that he had kind of said was, why not us? You know, when you look at, when you look at that group, when you look at the different advantages that Kansas can have, 
when you look at the the coming new facilities and, and everything else, I'm not saying, you know, that he was saying, you know, Kansas should win the Big 12 next year. But when we're looking at 2028, 2029, you know, down the road a little bit, I, I think you make a great point. When you look at all of those programs, when you look at the way Kansas is recruiting right now, you add that part to it and everything. I, I think Kansas has a chance. There's somebody from that group that you just mentioned that's going to be at or near the top of the conference. You know, Utah's, you know, seems like they're going to be up there at the top. Oklahoma State, um, you, uh, K-State, like you said, probably, is, you know, based on recency and everything and consistency and all those different things. There's somebody right in that group, in that group of like five or six teams right below that, who's going to be up there with those teams and, and may even, you know, wind up being, at the top of those teams, depending on the way that things develop and, mm. and, and other factors and things like that. And, and so games like this are, are important and games like this week against Texas tech is going to be important. Texas tech's recruiting at a really high level. You know, I think, you know, I, I could be wrong on this because it's been a couple of weeks since I've probably looked at, at the recruiting standings, but I think Texas tech has, the best class of any um, of any of the new Big 12s. I mean, obviously they're not a new Big 12 school, but no. the teams that are going to be in yeah. the new Big 12, I think they have the best recruiting class right now. And so yeah. talent being, you know, what it is and being so important, you know, obviously that's, that's a big deal. And the teams that perform well in those first two years or so in the new Big 12, they could have a leg up in recruiting. You know, if if Kansas all of a sudden goes from, hey, two years ago, you know, we won two games to, hey, we just finished second in the new in the new look Big 12, the recruiting could take another, you know, step up at, at that point as well. And so these next few years become really important for sort of establishing that baseline and everything too. Yeah, and it's why I think a winning season this year is just so important, period, right, to sure. continue to show consistency. Um, and you are right. Texas Tech does have the number one class in terms of points, and that's counting, right, the fact they do have a lot of commits, but also in terms sure. of the average rating, right, they're only behind Colorado. Um, yep. So, I mean, they're recruiting at a very high level. So I think, I think you know, this is just another one of those kind of benchmark wins, and KU's got another one of those games in two weeks, but obviously this week yep. is going to be a really huge one for KU to keep that momentum going because, yep. you know, I thought Brian Borland was really interesting this week, you know, and I, I think honestly, like Andy Kordonecki gets a lot of the plaudits, right, for being entertaining for an interview. But if you listen to what Brian Borland says, it's really interesting. And he's, he's pretty frank. Like he shoots you straight. And he basically said this week, like, look, if we want to be a championship program, like, you can't week to week, like have games where you're up and down, you're up and down every week. You've got to kind of just be there and be ready to work. And I think this is the type of game where coming off of such a huge win for KU over Oklahoma and yeah. a game that needed so much, I think just emotional energy to come back the ups and downs, the delays, everything to come back and have this type of, I think generally complete performance I think shows that they're also taking that step in the direction of, of getting there. So I think yeah, it's another one of those kind of boxes checked. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think, you know, even beyond that, I think, 
the defense being able to stack performances like that mm. because the defense was so important against Oklahoma with what they were able to do. And, you know, that comeback was made possible because they got stops in the biggest of moments. And, and I think being able to build off of that, you know, and, and continue to grow with that week in and week out, uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, you know, entering the season, I, I had some questions about Brian Borland based on what they did last year, you know, based on the fact that, you know, a lot of what Kansas had been running was, was really simple stuff. And, and that was by design. You know, they, I think they mostly wanted to, Hey, let's not get beat deep. Let's make teams, you know, take 10 plays to, to find the end zone as opposed to, to getting us over the top. But I think that as this year has gone on, you've seen very tangible improvement with that defense and with the defense's confidence, you've seen the way that they've continued to play better. And I do think that, uh, I do think that Borland's star is trending up. I, I guess you would maybe say in terms of, of how that group is playing. I, I thought they played really well against Iowa state. And like I said, I, I thought they did that despite the fact that I thought Rocco backed was, was really kind of on one. You know, I, I thought he was seeing the field really well, he was, you know, avoiding pass rushers really well and keeping his eyes downfield and, and finding guys. And, you know, I, I thought that uh, I thought Kansas played about as well as it could defensively in that game for what was going on. Yeah. And it's almost like the equivalent of the what the three, three, five defense is to KU's run game. Up tempo teams are to KU's defense and yeah. they've got an up tempo team in Texas Tech coming in this week and watching Tech on Thursday beat TCU, I thought the running back Texas Tech has is really good. He's yep. a physical guy that, that has some juice to him. I thought the backup quarterback for Tech um, was playing. I thought he's playing really well. Yep. Like This is a Tech team that's not played well on the road this year, and they've really struggled, I think, out playing teams from outside the state of Texas as well. Um, but I think this is another one of those kind of check the box, right? Texas Tech – that game last year was not pretty. Yeah. Right? They, they got basically waxed early, fought back. Right. But it's another chance for KU to kind of show, all right, improvement, right? This is a better team than last year's team. Can you now go show it at home against the Texas tech team that again, is coming off a good win against Iowa state. They got two extra days of prep, which I think is pretty big if you're going to go on the road and play. Yeah, and they've got some defensive linemen that I think are going to play in the NFL, or at least guys, you know, along that front, I guess. One of them's a, a linebacker, you know, who basically is a stand-up edge guy. But, yeah, I, I think that this is a real challenge for, for Kansas to keep that consistency going. We know that Kansas has typically been a lot better at home. You know, they've typically started better at home. They've, you know, gotten off to – to some great starts against, you know, so, some fairly solid teams at home. And so when you, when you look at all of that, like you said, it, it was just so encouraging to see the fact that there wasn't any sluggishness coming off that Oklahoma game with all of the things that that involved with bumping you back into the polls with you being in the college football playoff rankings for the very first time with all of those different things where you could have, it would have been so easy to pat yourself on the back and be satisfied and, and come into that Iowa state game and not play well with the way that they were very businesslike 
in that Iowa State game. I, I think, you know, you can expect probably something similar this week. I, I think one of the keys is going to be can they get those defensive tackles back healthy because of all the snaps that Texas Tech is is going to try and get those guys on the field for? You know, it's Iowa State was an offense that, hey, if you're getting them off the field in three plays, you can maybe be okay with with those guys out. But I, I think when you look at Devin Phillips, when you look at Tommy Dunn, you know, those are guys that Kansas may need back and, and may need back in the lineup this week. Yeah, so we'll see. Yep. By the time you're listening to this, Kay, you may have practiced already. <laughs> um, it depends on when you're listening to this on Monday, Tuesday, or whenever you get to it. But, um, Kevin, I think that's what I got thoughts-wise. You got anything else on the game or looking ahead to this week? Yeah, ju- just in general, you know, it's uh, – I know you wrote an article that, that I recommend people go to fog.net to, to check out looking at the pro football focus ratings for, for each player. Um, and and Jason Bean, you know, his rating, that's about as high as I can remember him having for, for throwing the ball, you know, it being in the nineties and everything. And then I tweeted out something today. If you look at ESPN's total QBR stat, Jason Bean is now top 20 in the country. He's number 20 and number three among big 12 quarterbacks in total QBR. And that's not among backups. That's not, you know, whatever it accounts for caliber of competition, like it's opponent adjusted mm. and he's a, he's a top 20 guy. And so it's very easy. And I think we probably said something a couple weeks ago where we said, you know, look, Jason Bean is your backup quarterback and you're getting pretty good play, you know, for a backup quarterback out there. You look at the way that he ended against Oklahoma. You look at what he just did against Iowa state. You look at, you know, that total QBR, Kansas is getting pretty good quarterback play right now, kind of regardless of if he's the backup quarterback or, or not. And so kudos to Jason Bean because that's that's been that's been a journey for him. You know, that hasn't mm-hmm. always been the case. And, and I think, you know, we talked about it, talked about it last week, you know, what a great story it was that, hey, this guy comes back to college basically because he makes a big mistake and a huge moment in their bowl game. And to, for him to have that moment against Oklahoma, you know, was, was such a cool thing that, that, you know, had to give him some closure on that. Well, he, he came back out against Iowa state and was even better. And so, you know, if he, if he continues to grow and develop, you know, there's, the, there's no stopping this guy as Tony Montana on Scarface would say, he's going to go straight to the top. So I love it. That's a good way to end it. Shout out Jason Bean. Shout out Jason Shout out Bean. Jason Bean. Um, thank you as always for listening to the Fog.net podcast. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're liking the videos, subscribing to the channel, dropping comments. All those things go a long way and helping us with the algorithm and getting more people to see the show so they can engage and get a taste of whatever the heck you want to call this that Kevin and I are cooking yep. every Sunday. Um, <laughs> if you're listening on podcast platforms, please also leave ratings and reviews on whatever platform you choose. Again, those also go equally as well as far in helping mm-hmm. us find new people. So thanks as always for tuning in. We'll be back with another episode midweek previewing the Texas Tech game. But for Kevin Flaherty, I'm Michael Swain. We'll talk to you next Sunday.
From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount+, Plus to try it free. Terms apply.